0: Genesis thirty four Genesis thirty four been seen some very positive and encouraging things happening in Jacob's life over the last few chapters. We've seen God deliver him from the hand of Laban, and God deliver him from Esau and bring peace into their relationship, and we've seen that he's now called Israel, and and we see how God is maturing him as a man, and, and yet we get to Genesis 34, and the somewhat rosy picture that's been painted gets balanced out with the other side of things namely that even true followers of God are not perfect in this life and that we all have struggles that, um, that haunt us. We have our, our um, blind spots, so to speak. And certainly in the life of Jacob, his blind spots tended to involve his family and the way he led his family and the members of his family, and, and that led to serious consequences for generations to come. Genesis thirty-four is the kind of passage that can sometimes make Christians very uncomfortable. We we read this passage and wonder what it's doing in our Bibles. Um, Genesis thirty-four is about an act of rape, and it's about vengeance, and it's about murder. It's the kind of passage that if our kids was, were reading a book that had these things in it, we uh, very well might take the book away from them and say, this is inappropriate for you to be reading. And yet God ordained a passage like this to be a part of Holy Scripture. And we know that all Scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so, since this passage is in our Bibles, there is instruction here for us from our Savior. There is correction here for us from our Lord. The scriptures do not paint an unreal picture of humanity, the scriptures deal honestly with some of the messiest, most disturbing realities. In this passage, we find that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is raped, and then we see how he responds, and we see how her brothers, his sons, respond, and none of them respond well. The message of this chapter seems to be that difficult, heart-wrenching situations do come into the lives of God's people. And here are two extremes of how we must not respond when those situations come to us. We must not respond passively the way Jacob does, and we must not respond in hateful vengeance the way his sons do. Let's look first at the incident itself. It's verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, "'whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. "'And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, "'he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. "'And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. "'He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. "'So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, "'Get me this girl for my wife.'" So it all begins with with Dinah, the daughter of Leah. And it is important that she's the daughter of Leah. Um, As we've already seen, one of the terrible sins that plagued the house in which Jacob grew up in was favoritism. And now favoritism plagues his own house. Jacob has loved Rachel, and yet he has not shown that same kind of love to Leah. Indeed, earlier we saw that Leah said that, that her husband hated her. As the daughter of Leah, there are indications that Jacob has neglected Dinah, that he has not shown strong attention to her and affection for her. There seems to be a disattachment between Jacob and Dinah. She is young, a teenager certainly, um, we think maybe 14, 15 years old. She's at the age where her failure to find love and security from her father pushes her to look elsewhere. She's curious about the pagan world around her. She's she's not content with her home life. She wants to go into the city to see what the other teenagers are doing, the way that they live. Her stated reason for going into the city was that she wanted to see the women of the land, but not a few commentators have mentioned that she probably wanted to see the boys of the land too. Matthew Henry suggests that what she really wanted was to be seen by the boys of the land. So Dinah was allowed to leave her home alone and to enter the city alone. And who she met and what kind of things took place, all of this is left out. All of we, that we know is that there was one man in particular, Shechem, the son of one of the most important men in the city, he encountered Dinah. Now, don't be confused. Both the city and this young man have the name Shechem. The young man's name is Shechem. The city's name is Shechem. Well, this young man, in the heat of his lust, seizes Dinah and rapes her. Here was a young woman who was not discerning enough to see the danger she was putting herself in. Jacob should have loved her better and taught her better, not allowing her to become fascinated with the allurements of the world. There's an old Aesop's fable about a pigeon that was very thirsty, a pigeon that was flying around looking for water. The pigeon sees a, a goblet of water that's been painted on a sign. And so the pigeon gets up its speed as it, as it flies to dive into the goblet of water, But it only flies directly into the sign and it falls to the ground. And with its wings broken, the pigeon dies. Well, similarly, worldliness is a facade, a lie. It speaks to us and says, look at what's happening over here. Look at what you are missing. Look at the the fun we're all having and all of the experiences that you could be having. And yet it's all a veneer for sin and death. Dinah took a trip to see how the pagan world lived, and she got far more than she bargained for. This should be a warning to all of us who are tempted to look longingly at unbelievers and the way unbelievers around us live. We need to remember Lot's wife who looked back longingly at her old life in Sodom. This should be a warning to us who are parents Our children, and perhaps particularly our teenagers, are vulnerable to this kind of snare. They grow tired of their Christian family and the way their family does things. They want to know, how does the rest of the world live? They want to see and experience a different kind of life. So-and-so at school or so-and-so down the street, they get to do this or they get to do that or they're involved in this, they're involved in that. Why don't I ever get to do those things? The grass is always greener on the other side. And so it's the responsibility of Christian parents to help their children see that it is a facade, that the best this world has to offer still ultimately ends in sin and death. The Christian life, the life of of living by faith according to the ways taught to us by Christ, This is the best and safest and most joyful life someone can know on this planet. If our children take our words for it, they will be very, very blessed because of it. It is sad when children don't take their parents' word for it and have to learn the hard way that this is true. Following Christ is the way of real peace in our hearts, real peace with God. The allure of pagan worldliness attracted Dinah. And the consequences for her were terrible. But then there's this young man, Shechem. And what he did was an awful thing. He is the one who committed this heinous act, but he is a pagan. And so we don't know what his life of growing up was like, what kind of morality he was taught, but it was almost certainly something very different than what you and I believe He was probably a young man used to getting what he wants. He was the son of a powerful man. He lives for self, and as we will see again and again in this passage, the way he treated Dinah, it was despicable and outrageous. As it happens, though, even after he has done this terrible thing, his heart is genuinely drawn to Dinah. He cares about her. We're told that he speaks tenderly to her and that he wants her as his wife. In fact, he goes to his father with his desire, and now it is him and his father who will go to Jacob to see if a marriage match can be made. Do you see that word get in verse 4? That word get, it's the same as the word that is translated seized in verse 2. Literally, Shechem seized Dinah once. Now he wants her to be seized again for him as his wife. And this does reflect something of the sinful character of this young man. He's the kind of man who when he sees something he wants, he wants it now and he must get it. In fact, in verse 4, that word get is an imperative. He is commanding his father. He is demanding of his father, get me this woman to be my wife. We'll look at verses 5 through 7 and see what happens next. Verses 5 through 7. Now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now already we see two different responses, that of Jacob and that of his sons. Jacob hears the news of what has happened to his daughter Dinah, and we're told that he held his peace until his sons returned from the field. He does not respond rashly. But he determines that when his sons come back, a decision can be made about the best way to respond. That This isn't a bad thing here. It is very prudent to be thoughtful and wise in the way you respond in a difficult and messy situation. The issue is complicated too because Jacob and his family are foreigners living among these people. And so if he responds in a harsh way to Shechem and Hamor, there's always the danger that the people of Shechem, as well as people from the other regions around them, they could gang up against him and his family. And so there are lives at stake in the way they respond. So Jacob is holding his peace. Jacob is waiting. His sons immediately head home as soon as they hear the news. We're told that they are indignant, they are very angry, and to some extent this anger was a righteous anger. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 7 that the rape of Dinah was an outrageous thing in Israel, something that must not be done. He sympathizes with the anger of the brothers. Here is Israel at its very beginnings, one man and his family. But remember that the book of Genesis was being written for the nation of Israel as they travel through the wilderness to the promised land. And so Moses is making very clear to those people that they must not minimize this sin. This is a kind of sin that is a terrible thing and must never be done. Now, Why is this sin of rape so terrible? Well, there are many, many reasons, as you know. Woman was given to man to be cherished by him, not abused by him. But ultimately, it comes down to the gospel. You see, the gospel is about how Jesus loves his bride, how he gave his life for her, how he gently leads her and provides for her. Jesus has made promises to us, and it is by our trust in him that we receive his love and that we are his and and that we are saved. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Husband and wife make promises. The husband will care for his wife, love his wife, sacrifice for his wife, cherish his wife, protect his wife. And just as Christ finds great joy in his church, the husband is to find great joy in his wife. And the marriage bed is a part of that. So rape destroys the picture of the gospel that marriage is supposed to display. Jesus does not attack His church. Jesus does not come with no promises and no love and no tenderness and make us His own. Rape is a forced union with no covenant and no love. Whereas Jesus wins His bride by winning her heart, overwhelming her in love and grace and mercy and blessing. So, rape is terrible because it hurts women. It leaves physical scars that maybe can heal, emotional scars that that will not heal. But ultimately, it is terrible because it is blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a twisted distortion of the gospel. Because of that, it is an outrageous thing, the kind of thing that must not be done. And so here is Jacob keeping his peace, wanting to respond carefully. Here come his sons, and they are on fire mad. And here comes Hamor and Shechem with this proposal for Dinah to be given to Shechem as his wife. Let our sons intermarry with your daughters. Let your, let your sons intermarry with our daughters. That's the proposal. Let's see it in the beginning of verse 8. Beginning of verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her, Dinah's father, and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So you see here the offer of Hamor and his son. Intermarry with us, and the land shall be open to you. Jacob, you can have property. You will have greater opportunities for business. You will profit financially. What's more, Shechem is willing to pay a hefty bride price. Indeed, whatever you name for Dinah, all you have to do is agree that our sons and daughters can intermarry with one another. Now, this is a theme that we see again and again in the scriptures. And it was extremely important for the nation of Israel that received the book of Genesis getting ready to enter the promised land where the Canaanites lived. The nation of Israel receiving this book will soon be on the very same land where their father Jacob is dealing with this issue in this passage. And they will have to deal with it too. Can God's people marry others who are not God's people? Or should they? Well, the answer throughout the Scriptures is that intermarriage between those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God is wicked and dangerous. How can you become one with someone who has enmity in their heart against your God? And how can you expect to serve God well when you've brought someone who will tempt you away from Him into your own home to be the person on this planet who is dearest to your heart? Now, we've talked many times about this before, about the great sadness of of living every day, knowing that the person you are married to will one day be in hell while you are in heaven. You long to see your spouse converted, and yet there's no guarantee that it will happen. Indeed, more times than not, it is the Christian who is led away from Christ rather than the non-Christian who is led to Christ. When Israel did begin disobediently, intermarrying with the pagans around them, we don't read of huge numbers of pagan peoples coming to trust Yahweh. We read of huge numbers of Israelites turning away. And that's the way it normally plays out. Don't underestimate the power of this world to capture the affections and allegiance of your heart. Mark 3.25, Jesus said, And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so Christians are to marry Christians. And what a joy to, to have a spouse who knows the same Jesus that you know. What a joy to be able to talk together about the most important things in the world. What a joy to be on the same page as you seek to raise your children and the ways of God. What a joy to be able for, to, to encourage your spouse in prayer and holy living. It is a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk with Him. The only thing better is knowing Jesus Christ, walking with Him, and having others who are close to you encouraging you as you do so. We must be hard-nosed on this issue. Our God loves us. He would not give us this command if it was not for our everlasting happiness and good. But there's something else we need to note from these verses. And it's not what's in these verses, it's what's not in these verses. Hamor and Shechem come to Jacob and come to his sons, and there is not a single word of apology. No expression of remorse. No acknowledgement that what was done to Dinah was wrong. From their perspective, what happened to Dinah is just not that big of a deal. Let her be given to Shechem and all will be fine. See, here is the moment when Jacob needs to stand up. Here is the moment when Jacob, as her father, needs to talk to these men about the true God and about true morality. Instead, probably out of fear for his family, he remains passive. Instead of acting as the head of his household and taking charge of the situation, he just sits back and his sons in their vengeance take over so let's see the response that the sons give, beginning in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. You can see how the sons have taken over even the role of Jacob. They called Dinah our daughter. There was a time when Jacob was a deceiver, lying to people for his own gain. Now his sons are following in his wicked footsteps. They answer deceitfully. And what is their plan? Why have all of the men of Shechem be circumcised if there's no intention of actually giving the daughters to intermarry with them? What is the plan that these sons are up to? Watch it unfold beginning in verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now the gate of the city was the place where assemblies were held to discuss important matters pertaining to the city. And you see how Hamor convinced the men of the city to be circumcised. Namely, he appealed to their greed. He said, let us intermarry with rich Jacob and his sons and their riches will come to us. Through inheritance, through Jacob's family becoming one people with us, there's going to be great economic benefit for us. By appealing to their greed, he enticed the men of Shechem to be circumcised. Verse 25. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Here was the plan. The men of the city are now in no condition to fight. Simeon and Levi, sons of Leah, brothers of Dinah, come and execute their own vigilante justice upon the city. Only one man had defiled Dinah. In their wrath, they made the whole city pay. The rest of the brothers come upon the city and they plunder it. And they capture not only the livestock and the property, but they take even the women and the children. This sin of Simeon and Levi is even worse than Shechem's. Shechem took Dinah's honor. They took the lives of every man in the city. Their sin was terrible on so many levels. First, no one seems to be considering Dinah's part in this, namely the fact that, that, that she likely played the tempter to Shechem. She certainly is not to be blamed for what happened to her, but she wouldn't have been the first teenage girl to, to flirt with young men not realizing the strength of human lust. As Matthew Henry says, had Shechem abused her in her own mother's tent, well, that would have been another matter. But she went upon Shechem's ground, and perhaps by her indecent carriage had struck the spark which began the fire. When we are severe upon the sinner, we must also consider the tempter. And this is not to excuse Shechem at all, but it should have been considered by the brothers who surely knew for themselves what it was to wrestle with this sin of lust. And then there's the fact that Shechem really did seem to have feelings for Dinah. He seemed to really love her. Should that not account for at least a little bit of mercy? I say that because these brothers have determined that Shechem's punishment must be death. Yet not even the law of God given at Mount Sinai, as strict as it was, gave a punishment of death for rape. Deuteronomy 22:28 through 29 says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her and he may not divorce her all his days. And some people scoff at that law in Deuteronomy and act as if it doesn't go far enough. But what the law required was that the man who did this had to pay a steep financial price and then he was bound by the law to provide for and care for this woman as his wife for the rest of his life. Yet here, these brothers have made themselves judge and jury. They've assumed an authority they have no right to take upon themselves and they have determined that Shechem must die for his sin. And yet they go further. Because they don't just kill Shechem. They kill every man in the city. Men who had nothing to do with this sin. Men who had not sinned against them in any way, yet they punish them all for the sin of one. Not only do Simeon and Levi come with their own form of justice, but, but they have a very twisted and unfair justice. One that gives vent to their rage and harms people that were innocent of the crime. Think of all of the wives they made widows that day. All the children they left fatherless that day. Added to this is the fact that they took the ordinance of God, circumcision, and used it as a part of their plan. Something that was supposed to be meaningful to them as a a gift from God to their family that was supposed to say something spiritually important, and they used it in order to bring about this plan of theirs. It shows a lack of regard for God and all things holy as they went about this plan. And so here are the brothers, neck deep in wickedness, working out this plan, while Jacob is passive and appears to do absolutely nothing to address the situation. He allows his sons to run free in their vengeance, and the result was terrible. Now, what does the Bible say about taking revenge? Put simply, it says, don't. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All people will stand before God. And in the end, every terrible deed that has been done will be paid for. All will be made right in the end. We are taught to entrust ourselves to God and entrust the situation to God, never to act out of vengeance. Leave that to God. We are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us. We are to overcome evil with good. Here is a lesson that our Lord is teaching us about the conflicts we experience in our own lives. Whatever conflict you may be dealing with, don't ever respond out of anger or vengeance. Now, I don't know what might be going on in your life right now. Is there some situation in which you are being tempted to speak out of anger, to act out of vengeance? Look to God for His wisdom. And trust yourself to Him. Look at the last two verses of the chapter. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household." But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now Jacob is right about what Simeon and Levi have done. And it's rather sad that he never took any initiative in the process. He could have spoken with Hamor and found a path of reconciliation. He could have demanded a price for Dinah to ensure that she would be well cared for for the rest of her life. Instead, Jacob sits back and does nothing And these sons of Leah might well have thought, well, our father never cared for our mother, and now he doesn't care for our sister either. And so they take it upon themselves. We must stand up for her. Our father's not standing up for her. And only after they have done what they thought to do does Jacob speak up and complain about what they did. Men, let us lead our households. And not be passive the way Jacob was passive. He had walked with God for 20 years and he still fell into this sin. However long you have walked with God, this is still a temptation for us as men. We must not fall into the passivity of our culture. We must stand up and lead in our families. Now this passage has long-lasting ramifications the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob gathers his sons around him and he gives a blessing to each and every one of them. These blessings that he gives to his sons are almost a a prophecy of what their descendants will be. And each one of the blessings that he gives shows that that he has studied his sons. He he knows the character of each and every one of his sons and the blessing he gives fits the character of that son. Turn with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and look at the blessing that he gives to Simeon and to Levi, the two men who went into the city and killed all the males of Shechem. Genesis 49, look at verse 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 49, beginning of verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Jacob prophesies that the descendants of Simeon and Levi will be divided and scattered, whereas every other tribe will have their own little portion of land where that tribe can gather together. Simeon's people will be brought into the half-tribe of Manasseh, never having place of their own. The Levites will never have a portion of land that's their own, but will be scattered through cities all across Israel. Why? Because these men are too violent. And their descendants are going to be characterized by violence. And violence separates people. Now, it is interesting, the grace of God, particularly towards Levi and his descendants. In Genesis 34, Levi, in his passion to defend his sister's purity, goes out and acts in wickedness. And yet God makes Levi's children the defenders of his own purity. He says, Levi, if you're going to be standing up for the rights of somebody, you're going to become my priest, and you're going to enforce the laws that defend my holiness in the nation of Israel. And so God takes a tendency in the Levites that is often used for wickedness, and he turns it and uses it for good. And they become the defenders of God's purity in Israel. So... What is the message of this wicked, strange, dark chapter for us? Heart-wrenching, messy situations will come into our lives. We must not respond with a wicked passivity the way Jacob did. We must not respond out of anger or vengeance the way his sons did. Rather, leaving vengeance to the Lord Let us learn to look to Him and to respond with righteousness and mercy. God's glory should be our goal and the eternal good of all of those involved in whatever situation we're in. May our Savior help us as we seek to trust and obey Him in these things. We certainly need His help, don't we? Let's pray.